Uh, so welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, it is great to have everyone back for uh, this next uh, next session on on King David in the Babylonian Talmud with Rabbi David Silver. Um, my name is Michael Fraud. I'm the Assistant Program Director for Drisha, and I'm also going to be uh, helping out with tech this evening and uh, sharing resources. So I'm going to go ahead and share the screen. Okay, we should now have our sources up. Rabbi Silbert, does that work? Yes, it does, thank you. Great, in that case, I think we are good to go. Okay, thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. We are uh, in the middle of, perhaps past the middle of, uh, looking at the character of King David, David HaMelech, through the eyes of the Babylonian Talmud. And um, last week we looked at a Gemara that appears in towards the very end of Masechet Sanhedrin, and it focused in on the story of Nov. And um, that was two weeks ago. And last week we looked at the Gemara in Yevamot that, also, that focused on the story in the 21st chapter of 2 Samuel, Perikachalaf. That's the story of the Givonim. And the Gemara had a very interesting take on the story, which was that essentially in that story, as you recall, the text faults King Saul, Shaul, for killing the Givonim and in killing the Givonim in violating the oath that the people had taken in the book of Yoshua not to, not to kill the Givonim. It was an oath taken under false pretenses, but they were tricked, but they decided to abide by their oath. And King Saul in his zealousness for Israel apparently had killed the Givonim, a story which does not appear earlier in the book of Samuel at all. So we're surprised in the very end of the book, chapter 21, part of the so-called coda at the end of Samuel, we discovered that Saul has killed the Givonim and the Givonim demand retribution. And we discussed the story in light of the Bavli, that the Bavli actually implicitly raises the question. We were told there that the famine as a punishment took place three consecutive years during the reign of King David. And the Bavli is interested in understanding why the punishment for Saul's misdeed takes place in the reign of King David. And essentially what emerges from the Bavli is that there are two separate crimes which have taken place, paradoxically. One is Saul's killing the Givonim, but the other crime is the fact that Saul himself upon his death was not mourned properly. David, of course, has the famous elegy for Saul and Jonathan, why have the mighty fallen? But he's taken to task for not appropriately mourning Saul. And furthermore, the Gemara in Yuvamot suggests, because the Gemara is bothered by the question, uh, where do we see Saul killing the Givonim? It's not mentioned in the book of Samuel up to that point. And we suddenly discover this horrific thing that Saul has done, to which the Gemara makes the observation that he didn't actually kill the Givonim. What he did was he killed the priests of Nov. And the priests of Nov were sustaining, were feeding the Givonim. And when the priests of Nov were massacred, the food, the food supply for the Givonim 
was not there and they were dying for lack of food, which actually, if you think about it, I just thought of it now, would be a very appropriate punishment of famine, given the fact that perhaps that's what's driving the Gemara as well, that um, the, uh, the given him were deprived of food and therefore it's appropriate that in punishment, Israel is, has been derived of food and the punishment that's meted out and demanded by the Gibbonim, and David goes along with it, is to hand over seven of Saul's family. But in that story, this is in the story in chapter 21 of Shmuel, the famine is not abated when David hands over the seven uh, members of Saul's family. It only is abated after Saul and Jonathan are buried appropriately. So that's essentially, there's more to the Gemara than that. Maybe we'll come back to that Gemara but it was an appropriate uh, continuation of what we saw about Noah. The Gemara that we saw two weeks ago essentially blames David for the massacre of the priests of Noah because David knows that an informant of Saul is present with him when David goes to the city of priests and asks for food and asks for military supplies, sword, etc. And from that, essentially the informant goes to Saul the informant being Doe informs Saul and Saul massacres the priests. And the Gemara says that in Doe himself, who initially the Gemara thinks at that point was a person who was, who was in God's presence and the story of the priest and the temptation to curry favor with Saul causes Doe to lose his place, actually in the Gemara, his place in the world to come. And Saul then dies later with three of his children as punishment. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin lays this all at David's feet, not to exonerate Saul, but to blame David as well. So the two Gemaras actually, um, the two Gemaras are effectively linking, if we read them together, in the story of Nov, it blames Saul for the death, for the killing the Givonim on account of Nov. But the story of Nov itself, the Gemara and the Sanhedrin, and if we read the two Gemara together, one could not read them together. But if you do read them together, then essentially the story of the Givonim is also David's fault, which explains why the famine would come during the reign of David. So that's what we looked at for the last two weeks. Today, I'd like to, tonight to look at another Gemara. We won't finish this. And if we don't finish it tonight, we'll continue with this next week. And this is a Gemara that appears at the very end of the sixth chapter of Masechet Sanhedrin. The chapter is called Nigmar Hadin. This is the last piece of that chapter. And that itself is very interesting. So let me just very briefly describe what is in the sixth chapter of Sanhedrin. The sixth chapter of Sanhedrin called Nigmar Hadin, when the when the din, when the judgment has come to a conclusion, that is to say, when the party has been found guilty of a capital offense, and the Torah speaks of capital offense, the person can be executed, and the different modes of execution, four modes of execution. And the way the chapter begins is what happens after the person has been, has been found guilty of a capital punishment. So the Gemara says, this is not in your handout, but the Gemara says that after the person has been found guilty, condemned to die, 
there's still an opportunity for the condemned person to plead his case. And the first thing the Mishnah says, the first Mishnah says, is that the place of execution is outside the camp. Not only is it outside the camp, but it's also outside the court. So even if the court convened outside the camp, the place of execution is removed from the court. And the Gemara in the beginning of this chapter gives two different reasons for that. Uh, one is that it gives time for the person who's been taken out to be executed. If there's a possibility to find some kind of merit in his case, he can in fact uh, ask for it, the court to reconvene and to consider an argument in his favor. That's one reason. The second reason the Gemara gives in the beginning of the sixth chapter is that, so it should not appear that the court are actually killing the person. The Gemara is interested in discriminating, distinguishing between the judges who render the verdict and what actually happens afterwards. As if to say, perhaps, the judges are engaged in a study. They, they look at it very carefully. means careful study. And they come to the conclusion based on the facts of the case, based on the law. They come to an impartial uh, conclusion. And then the, what happens, of course, if he's found guilty, he's put to death. But that's separate from the judgment. As if to say the judgment is not related to what happens to the person. It is, in theory, a pure judgment. That's how the chapter begins. And in this chapter, just prior to this section, there's also a lengthy discussion about burial mourning and burial, because in the Torah, we find burial, the obligation to bury somebody in the context of the person who's been condemned to die. The Torah says that you shouldn't, if the person is hanged, perhaps after he's executed, it's not clear after or is that the mode of execution, but let's say after, um, then it says, the person should not be left hanging, that's the expression to be left hanging, but rather should be buried that same day. And it gives the reason, there's a whole world of, of, of interpretation around that phrase, but in any event, that's what we find burial. The Talmud presumes that burial applies not only to the condemned murderer or one who's guilty of a capital offense, but that kavartik was a mitzvah of everybody to be buried. So there's a long discussion, and that is, and other things come up in the chapter. And now we come to the very end of this chapter. The end of the chapter, and you have this on your handout, Sanhedrin 48b, Tanu Rabbanon. So this is a brighter, means a Tanaitic teaching that's not in the Mishnah. Everybody sees on, this is the handout. With regards to those executed, because they rebelled against, executed by, 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 by the king. If the king killed somebody, strange halacha, the property of the one executed by the king goes to the king. But if they're executed by the court, case goes to court, 
then the property of the one who's been executed passes on to the executed one's uh, inheritors. That's the first view in the Brayta. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda disagrees. He disagrees whether he was killed by the king or by court, the, the heirs always inherit the property. That's the disagreement in the Brayta. Now the Brayta continues. So they asked the question from the story of Navot. Who is Navot? Navot was a man, as described in Malachim, chapter 21. He was a fellow that lived up north, and his next door neighbor was Ahab, King Ahab, was his next door neighbor. And Navot had a very beautiful vineyard. And Ahab had many homes, and one of them was right next door to Navot. So Ahab says to Navot, Why don't you sell me the vineyard? I have a beautiful house here. I love your vineyard. Sell me your vineyard, or I'll give you even a better one someplace else. And Navot says to him, I can't do that. God forbid. This is the inherit. This is my family's inheritance. There's something holy about this. Perhaps it goes back to the initial division of the land. Sorry, your majesty, I can't do it. So Ahab goes back and soaks in his tent. He's sitting there sulking. And um, his wife comes home. His wife is Jezebel, Jezebel. What's the problem? He won't give me his vineyard. I mean, I often made, made a good deal. He, won't, he refuses to sell me his vineyard. Jezebel says, you're a king, leave it to me. So what Jezebel does is she speaks to the, some judges, important people, and she instructs them to bring their vote up on charges of blasphemy. He has blasphemed king and God and get two kosher witnesses and find him guilty and take him outside and have him executed. And that's what happens. Jezebel arranges the whole thing with or without the knowledge of Ahab, it's unclear. But after he's executed, um, Ahab doesn't ask any questions. He goes, <clears throat> heads down to the vineyard to take possession of the vineyard. So you see from that story, that after Navot has been executed, Ahab is there to take possession, the Rishto, to possess as an heir, to possess the vineyard. For Ahab, unfortunately, waiting at the gate is someone he doesn't want to see, named Eliyo Hanavi, who does not take kindly to this. Would you murder and also possess? Anyway, but you see from this, they said to Rabbi Yehuda, you see that when the king executes somebody, even though in the story there, it's the court that does it. It's a sham court. But leave that question out. But you see, when the king kills somebody, the king possesses. So so we answered, that's different. Right, we are show. No, Achim was actually related to Navot. He wasn't the closest relative, but he, he was in the line. But didn't Navot have other children? Yes, he had other children, says the Brayta, but he, but he, but he, but he, he but Ahab killed the other children also. And that's what it says that Eliyahu said, the blood of Navot and his children, uh, you are held accountable for. And the other one says, no, it's, he wasn't really 
wasn't his actual children, but he, he might have had children had he lived. In any event, fine. That's how the story, that's how our little brighter begins. As a parenthetical remark, before we get to King David, uh, I would simply parenthetically remark that the story of Navot, the field of Navot, and the story of David and Bathsheba are parallel stories. I write about this in my Hebrew commentary on the Megillah um, and uh, discuss that at some length about the parallels between Kerem Novot. It's a similar story. Somebody has one thing that's dear to him. In the case of Bathsheba, Uri has one human being dear to him. And the king, David, has many concubines and wives, but he covets that one particular person and he has Uriah killed to get this one thing that he covets. In the case of Nabot, Nabot has a field that's very dear to him, very special, sacred to him. And Ahab has many fields and many homes, unlimited, but he wants this particular one. In the first instance, David uses the war to eliminate Uriah. In the second instance, Ahab or Izevo acting for Ahab uses the system of justice. And of course, fighting wars and doing justice are the two job descriptions of the king. When the king requests a king in the book of, people request a king in the book of Samuel, the king should be our judge and fight our wars. So the two stories are parallel stories and I, I perhaps not lost on the Gemara, which begins this way. And now the Gemara segues into the next question. Gemara's, and then after this, I'll stop for a moment and take any comments or questions. So this will be a two week project for us this week and next week. So the Gemara says, assuming, fine. We can skip down a bit, Gemara says, Bishlomo Lamando, right there. Bishlomo means it is well. I understand that the one who says that one killed by the king, uh, the property goes to the king. I understand. So the Gemara says, I understand the following story, which is in the first chapter of Kings. You actually have the photostat on the bottom, but briefly, the first chapter of Kings, um, David is old and it's not clear who will succeed him. And first his older son, Adonia, thinks he's gonna be the king. He declares himself king. At the end of the day, Shlomo, King Solomon becomes the king. And before David dies, he calls Solomon over and he gives him some advice. One piece of advice is obey the Torah, obey God, do the commandments. That's one piece of advice. And the second piece of advice he gives him is three things. One is that Yoav, David's general, who's a central character in the book of Shmuel and even more so in the book of Chronicles, and they have different pictures of Yoav. Yoav is, says David, a dangerous man. He killed innocent people and you have to bring his head down to the grave in blood. That's one piece of advice. 
He says the same thing about Shimei ben Gera from the tribe of Benjamin who cursed David when David fled Jerusalem. And David swears he's not gonna harm him. I swore I'm not gonna harm him, but you didn't swear. You figure out a way you're a smart guy. And the third piece of advice is to be kind to the children of Barzillai HaGiladi. So what happened with Barzillai HaGiladi, the book of, of, of Muachim never tells us, but we know that Solomon does kill Yoav and does kill Shimi. The story over here is about Yoav. When Yoav hears that Solomon has become king, declared king by David, and Yoav supported the, um, the other candidate. Yoav supported, um, he supported uh, Adonia. So he realizes that he might be in trouble, supported the wrong candidate. So he rushes off and he holds on to the, to the, 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 the horns of the altar. The corners of the altar as a sanctuary. And Shlomo dispatches his hitman named Benayal ben Yehoyada to kill Yoav. So when Benayal comes into the next to the next to the altar, he says to Yoav, the king wants you to leave, to leave the altar. And Yoav responds to him, and that's what's cited over here. Lo eight I'm not leaving. You want to kill me, kill me here. And Benayo doesn't know what to do because he doesn't want to kill him next to the altar. Actually, the Torah speaks in chapter 21 of Shemot um, that if someone kills in a premeditated fashion, even take it from even the altar, which would suggest that the altar functions as a kind of sanctuary. Even today, we call the temple the sanctuary. Right? So it's connected to that idea that you don't kill someone in the temple. And uh, so the Gemara says, I understand, says the Gemara, why Yoav would rather die being killed by Benayahu. Uh, kill me here. And this way, the king is not bringing him up on trial. He's not being officially called a, a, a rebel against the king. So this way, his property would pass on to his, to his heirs. But according to the one who says that in any event, the property passes on to his heirs, why did Yoav care to hold on to the altar? He's gonna die anyway. What's the difference? My what's the difference? To which the Gemara answers, okay, that's true, but he wants to live another half an hour or three hours or another day or whatever. Fine. That's the context of the Gemara. Then the Gemara says the following. So Benayahu goes back to Shlomo. This is what he said. This is what I answered. So what did he say though? What did Yoav say? So the Gemara fills in what Yoav might have said. So Yoav says to Benayahu, it's not in the text. The Agatha fills it in. This is what he said to him. You can't punish me with two things. There is a principle, by the way, in Jewish law, not this principle, but a principle that you don't, if someone is put this, did something that causes a capital, a capital crime, say a death punishment, then there's a principle, if someone shoots someone, say tears his clothing and kills him, you put him to death, but he doesn't pay for the clothing. That's called Kim Lebe de So there is a concept 
that the greater punishment perhaps includes the lesser one, or perhaps you don't do two things to one person. One can formulate it in different ways. So Yoav said over here, look, he says, it's like this. Earlier in the book of Shmuel, after Yoav kills Avner, Yoav kills two generals in the book of Shmuel. The first is Avner, who was Saul's general, who came to make a deal with David. And when Avner finds out about it, when, when Yoav finds out about it, in the beginning of 2 Samuel, he kills Abner without David's knowledge. And when David finds out, he curses Yoav. The curse is found a few lines later in the Gemara as well. The house of Yoav should always be, uh, should always have uh, disease, lep leprosy, people who can't walk around, people that die by the sword, people who have no food, etc. So that was a curse. So Yoab, according to the Gemara, said to Benayahu, listen, tell Shomo one way or the other. If you want to kill me, David cursed me. So if you kill me, then you have to take away the curse. Take away the curse means it goes on you. Or you cannot kill me, and you can just leave the curse where it is. That's what, according to the Gemara, Benayahu goes back and says to Shomo. Okay, so he goes back. And we can skip a few more lines down and can read it more. And Shlomo says, okay, uh, kill him. And the Gemara then continues, you can skip a few lines over here. The Gemara then says that all the curses of the house of Yoav took place, actually occurred and felt, befell various kings of the Davidic dynasty. And it goes on to quote, skip 10, 15 lines down Uziah, Rechavam, etc. So you can move further down, keep going down, down, yeah, keep going, keep going, let's see, and uh, we'll stop a second. Keep going down, 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 more, it's a little more. Next page, a little more, more, more. Where is this? Let's see, keep going, keep going, keep going. Yes. Okay, fine. Fine. The Gemara, stop. So the Gemara says, and that's the expression we have, I'd rather be the one who's cursed rather than the one who gives the curse. Oh, fine. Now we're about to get to the actual discussion about Yoav's sentence. I'll stop for a moment at this point. Are there any comments or questions about what we have so far? Or, or clarifications? I have a question. I wasn't aware that there was a possibility of putting someone to death without going in front of a court. In other words, that the king has this power to individually declare the death of someone legally. Right. It's very, right. That's right. It's very unclear, actually. I mean, this is one of these murky very murky situations. The, of course, the case of, of Navot was he was actually brought up on false charges. They had the court put him to death. But whether the king has the right to simply, the Gemara will discuss this. Um, in other words, the Gemara presumes that someone who truly rebels against the king can be put to death. 
whether the king does that or whether you have to take the case to court is a good question. In some places, it would appear you take the case to court. And even over here, as we'll see, is kind of a court case. According to the Gemara here, the Gemara invents all this, obviously, but it's trying to make an interesting point. And the Gemara claims that when Shlomo says, listen, forget my father's curse, let's bring him up on charges, um, on the top of the page, on Memtetum and Aleph, it's about to say, they brought Yoav to, to, to be judged. There's going to be a case over here. And of course, in the case of Yoav, remember that Yoav is not being charged officially with, with, with rebelling against the king. See, in the case of Yoav, the reason that he's going to be put to death, really, is not because he killed Avner or because he killed another general that we'll see, Amasa. He killed Avner about 30 years ago. This, is, this story takes place much, David, David is dying now. David was a king for 40 years. And Avner comes to him 33 years ago. Yoav has been in David's employ, not only in David's employ, he's been his main warrior during the entire reign of David's kingship. And all of a sudden, 33 years later, he discovers that he had killed Avner. And in fact, he did kill Avner, but, and David cursed him. But David did not remove him from, from his job, quite the opposite. When David wants to deal with Uriah and get him killed, he sends a message to, uh, to uh, Yoav, which the Gemara will pick up, of course. But the point is, and the, so the Gemara will discuss this idea of, so the pretext over here, or pretense, is that he's being killed because he killed two, two innocent people. He's a straight out premeditated murderer. The truth is, which Yoav understands, and the reader understands, of course, is that that's not why Shlomo wants to get rid of Yoav. He wants to get rid of Yoav primarily because Yoav is perhaps dangerous or because David has a grudge against Yoav. Because we have to remember that Yoav also killed somebody else against David's will. He killed Avshalom. He's the one that kills Avshalom. And David specifically commanded his generals, go easy on the boy. So this is all, you know, part of the story, obviously. But your question is a very good one. It's very unclear to me from the Talmud whether the king can simply have someone killed or whether he brings them up on charges. Certainly there are places in the Talmud that suggest he brings them up on charges. Okay, over here, this is a kind of court case that we're about to be. Anybody else with any comments? So otherwise we'll move on. Okay, if you have comments, you can put in the chat or there'll be another break soon and we'll be happy to hear all the questions, comments, clarifications or whatever. So he must have they brought Yoav for, 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 for judgment. Amalek, so Amalek, he said, probably maybe Solomon said, the judge, whoever's acting as judge, my time Why did you kill Avner? See, the, in the Talmud, we have all these characters talking, talking legal talk. We, we've seen this already in the text that we've encountered. They're talking about some, some kind of a halachic discussion. When you read the book of Samuel, one does not get the impression that halacha plays a major role in the book. In fact, one might say, one does get the impression it plays virtually no role in the book. But 
That's a separate interesting question. The Gemara takes these characters and have them speak a kind of legalese, halachic language. Why did you kill Avner? You're a murderer. Omalei, goel hadam diasol havoi. So Yoav answers and says, I, I, I am the goel hadam. What's the goel hadam? If someone kills a relative, someone, Reuben kills Shimon, in a kind of uh, kills Shimon, okay, then the relatives of, of Shimon can, can, can avenge the death of Shimon by killing Ruben. If it was done in an unpremeditated fashion, and the Torah says he can run to the city of refuge and be saved. In a premeditated fashion, though, he's fair game. Now, in the beginning of the book of 2 Samuel, what's well, one book, but in 2 Samuel, so Asaiah was Yoav's brother. He runs after Avner. There's a war taking place. He runs after Avner. Avner says to him, leave, don't stop chasing me. I don't want to have to kill you. But Asael pursues him and Avner kills him. So Yoav makes the claim in the Gemara, and it could be in the text as well. He actually says it. He killed him because of Asael. He's taking vengeance for his brother. He says, what do you want from me? I'm a goal Adam. I'm an avenger of the blood. So Shlomo answered him, if it's Shlomo's the judge, what do you mean, Gaur Adam? Asol Rodef Haver. Asol was running after Abner to kill him. So he, he was he was in Rodef. So he's allowed to kill him. Amalei, so, so, so Yoav answers him, I'm sorry, so Shlomo answers him, very, very interesting. It comes up also in a different story with David. It says, it's true that if someone runs after you in, intending to harm you, if you can save yourself by killing him, you're permitted to do it, but that's only if that's the only way to save yourself. The doctrine of minimal force. If you could save yourself without killing him, by maiming him, by injuring him, then you're not allowed to kill him. So he, he could have, he'd have to kill him, says Shlomo, he could have just Injured him. Amalei or Yachil. So Yoav says, no, we couldn't do that. Amalei hashti bedofin chamishit kivein What are you talking about? Because it says that he killed them in a particular place where, where, the, where the river meets the, the gore, whatever it is, in a particular delicate place. He was so precise, he could aim so precisely. So he could have, he could have done that. Did you tell me he couldn't stop him? But so that's, that's their argument. So Shlomo doesn't accept the argument that Asal was a Rodef. Well, we study in the book of Shmuel, we talk about this at length in the text. It's an interesting question. So Shlomo says, Nezel Avner. Let's, okay, let's forget about Avner. My timer ketalte li Amasa. Why did you kill Amasa? Now, who is Amasa? Amasa is, in the book of Samuel, the commander-in-chief of Abshalom's army. Absalom rebels against David and he loses. He himself is killed by Yoav and his general is Amasa. After Yoav kills Absalom, David's very upset with Yoav and he replaces Yoav with Amasa. He replaces the winning general with the losing general. What happens afterwards is that after Absalom is defeated, there's another rebellion against the king with 10 of the tribes leave David. 
and David's very worried about this. And he, and he, and he tells Amasa, who's his general, to gather the troops and to fight and to put down, to quash this rebellion. But Amasa is supposed to come back in three days. He doesn't show up. Meanwhile, the rebellion is taking place, at which point Yoav, not requested to do so, goes out, kills Amasa, marshals the forces, and squashes and quashes the rebellion and saves David's kingship. That's the story. So now Shlomo says to, uh, to uh, Yoav, why did you kill Amasa? Amale. So Yoav said, Amasa morid b'malchut He was a rebel against the king. Morid b'malchut. After all, the king said, come back in three days. And he didn't come in time. By Yochar, he came late. He delayed. He didn't come. Fine. That's all true, by the way. He didn't come in time. And now we have the Talmud Bavli. You ready for this? Amale. Amale. Amasa Achim Viratim Dorash. Amasa was Doresh Achim Virakim. What does that mean, Doresh Achim Virakim? The word Ach and the word Rach, because they're all, they're, all, they're all studying Torah, they're all in the Beit Midrash, all of them. And he was Doresh Achim Virakim. What, what, where, where does it say Ach and Rach? And here they cite the verse in the first chapter of Yoshua. Where God says to Yoshua, Chazak Bematz, be strong. Taking over Moshe's task, job is no easy task. And it says there in chapter one of Yoshua, Kol Isha Sheyamred Picha Vroyishmat Varecha, Ukoashetitzavenu Yumat. It says, Whoever doesn't obey you, whoever rebels against you, should be put to death. Now the Gemara comments, Yochoaf Ludivre Torah. Someone who doesn't respond to you, obey you, even though that person is studying Torah. Talmud Lomar says, Rak Kazak Vermatz. Rak, the word Rak is an exception. Only Rak Kazak Vermatz. So Amasa was Doresh Achim Barakim. What does that mean? So it means the following. The story is Amasa was supposed to meet up with David three days later, marshal the troops put down the rebellion. But Amasa walked into the, uh, the Beit Medrash. He walked into the Beit Medrash. They were learning a new, a, a new Masechta. They had just started to learn. So Amasa became engrossed in the learning. And he said, you know, it says, only Rach, there's an exception to, there's a, there's a, a, a license to disobey the king for the purpose of Torah study. So he was Doresh Rak. Amasa was Doresh Achim Barakim. So he wasn't actually a rebel against the king. He was Doresh Achim Barakim. That's the Babli. So you chuckle to yourself. But now we'll get to the point over here. Right. Then it goes on. And then he said to, 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 to Yoav, um, but the truth of the matter is, Hahugavra, but you it means, but you are a Mori Malfoot. Because it says, in the first chapter, that he followed Adonia, but he didn't follow Avshalom. What does that mean? He didn't follow Avshalom. He actually killed Avshalom. He didn't follow Avshalom means he wanted to follow Avshalom. He wanted to rebel against David and take Avshalom's side, but he was afraid to do so because David was still powerful. David was still powerful. And then there's another opinion. Rabbi Yossi says 
not so that David was so powerful. David's old already, but David has his 400 soldiers. Remember we encountered the 400 soldiers of David? That in the Bible, you have 400 children of Yifatoah, 400 children of captive women that were taken in battle. And they dressed like Gentiles, it says, and they would be marauders and they were very powerful. And Yoav was afraid of them. And then the Gemara cites another opinion, and there's another view, that's not the case. Yoav was afraid of nobody. Because the verse says that David did Osem Mishpatu Tzedakah, for Yoav ben Suriah, and Yoav was his general. My time, how, how, how come they, uh, how could, what, what, what allowed David to do Mishpat and Tzedakah? Because Yoav was on the, commanded the army. And how, and how could Yoav command the army successfully? Because David did Mishpat and Tzedakah. He was a righteous king. So that's that opinion. He's a righteous king, fine. Anyway, then it says the following. Now they quote a different verse about Avner. It says, Yoav killed Avner by tricking him. After he hears that Avner had visited the king to make a deal to bring all the tribes under David's control. So it said that Yo Yoav uh, left David and he sent messengers to bring Abner back and he killed and he, and he brought him to a place called Bar Hasira. Bar Hasira. What does Bar Hasira mean? So we, they quote a statement Amurabi Abba Bar Kahana, Bar Vasira, Garmulogli Abner Shayoreg. So it means the following What is Bar and Sira? It's enigmatic. It's really impossible to know. Rashi tells us, and it's actually in the Yerushalmi, that Avner died because of Bar and Sirah. And this refers to two stories, two parallel stories in the book of Shmuel. The first is the Sirah. The first story is in chapter 24, the story that's familiar to many of us. When Saul is chasing after David, he goes into a cave, and David has an opportunity to kill him. And... David doesn't kill him, but David tears Saul's garment. He cuts off a piece of, of Saul's garment, Sirah's thorns. So it means that when Avner saw that David could have killed him but didn't, Avner should have stepped up to make peace between the two sides. He didn't do that. And the second story is, that's, that's the bar. The Sirah is the story of, in chapter 26, when... When, when David comes to the camp again and Saul is sleeping and David takes Saul's pitcher of water and he, he, um, he uh, takes the pitcher of water, that's the bar, I guess, and Abner again should have seen that David meant peace, didn't want to kill Saul. He should have stepped in as a peacemaker. So Abner is guilty, says the Bavli. He's guilty because he should have come in and stepped in when there's the opportunity to make peace between the two sides. That's a theme that we've seen already, that someone who doesn't take the opportunity is in a position to do good, but fails to do so, bears an enormous responsibility. Fine. Then it goes on. We can skip down a little bit. Fine. Now, here's the point about, if you skip down a little further down, right there, right there, right there. When David spoke to Solomon and David said, you, sh you should kill Yoav because Yoav, it says, kill two people. Uh, 
So Solomon says to Benayahu went to kill Yoav. And Yoav's holding on to the, to the altar. So Benayahu doesn't know what to do. He goes back to Solomon. What should I do? So Solomon says to Benayahu in the first chapter of Kings of Malachim, kill him. And God will repay. The blood, blood is on his head. They were more righteous than he. So, so the Talmud says, how are Avner and Amasa better than Yoav? So the Talmud says, Tzadikim, now, what does this mean? And I'll explain what this means. And when you read these lines, understand these two lines, you get an appreciation for the Talmud Babali and what they're doing over here. Solomon said, kill Yoav. He killed two righteous people. The truth is when one reads the books of, book of Shmuel, one does not get the impression that Avner is a very righteous person. Amasa backed Avshalom against his father. Is he righteous? Okay, we, they have Amasa as, as someone who spends time in the Beit Midrash. He's Doresh Achin Barakin. What does it mean they were Doresh Achin Barakin Vahulo Darash? Who be Geret Asar Vahin Bepevlo Asu? So it means the following. What the claim is over here is that, let's take, for example, Avner. Avner, Avner was also Doresh Achim Barakim. Where was he Doresh Achim Barakim? So that, it's not explicit, but the, the meaning is, is clear. It's the story of the priest of Nov. The Gemara keeps coming back to the priest of Nov. You remember that when Doe reports back, reports that David was in the city of the priest, the city of Nov, and Saul said to his people, go around and kill the priests. And the text says over there, but the soldiers refused to kill the priests of the Lord. And then Saul says to Doeg, you kill them. You do it. You're the one who testified against them. You kill the priests of And Doeg kills the 85 priests of Noah. The Gemara assumes that one of the soldiers of Saul who refuses to do it is Avner. After all, Avner is his general. So presumably he was there. And when Saul said to Avner, you killed the priest, he refused to do it. He's Doresh Achim Barakim. You follow the king, but not always. That's Doresh Achim Barakim. So like Amasa, Amasa was Doresh Achim Barakim. I want to learn Torah. Don't have to follow the king. And even though the king said explicitly, prepare, you come back in three days. And even though Saul said to Avner explicitly, kill the priest of Nov, he refused to do it. So they're more righteous, they're more righteous than Yoav. Because why is Yoav not righteous? Because Yoav did what? He wasn't Doresh Achim Barakim. When is Yoav not Doresh Achim Barakim? In what story is Yoav not Doresh Achim Barakim? Be'igeret, when he gets a letter to do something. When does he get a letter to do something? With Uriah. Of course. He gets a letter from David, say, kill Uriah. But he wasn't Doresh Achim Barakim. Yeah, you can't make this stuff up, by the way. So he's more righteous 
what they're more righteous than Shlomo is about to kill. It will kill Yoav because he killed people more righteous than he. More righteous in what sense? They're Doresh Achim Verakim. He's not Doresh Achim Verakim. But of course, the point of not being Doresh Achim Verakim means following the king who says commit murder. But who is the king who says commit murder? Shlomo's father, David, who has commanded that, that Yoav be killed. Now, what I'm saying is, you can't actually make this stuff up. In <laughs> other words, the truth of the matter is that it's exactly the Bavli is exactly in consonance with the first chapter, actually the first two chapters of the book of Malachim. Because the first two chapters of Malachim, which describe how Shlomo succeeds to, to gain the kingship, that David has commanded him to kill Yoav and to kill Shimi, even though he swore not to do it. And in point of fact, the first person that Shlomo kills to secure the kingship is not Yoav, nor is it Shimi, but actually it's his own brother, whom David did not command to kill. But the idea of killing Yoav, the reason is he supported the wrong fellow. He's a supporter of the other side. He might be dangerous. The pretext here, which of course is what it is, is that he killed uh, Avner. But of course, the point of the Gemara is that when he killed Avner, what did David do? He cursed him. He didn't kill Yoav. Now did he not kill Yoav. He retains Yoav as his commander-in-chief, and he depends upon him to, to save him more than once. So the, the actual, the, the unbelievable hypocrisy of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Malachim is reflected in the Bavli. When the Bavli says, well, what is Dorish Achim Barakim? What is not Dorish Achim Barakim? I mean, it's terrific because, of course, he wasn't Dorish Achim Barakim. But if he had been Dorish Achim Barakim, he would not have done what David commands him to do, which, of course, is to kill Uriachite. So this is, this is the Bavli talking over here. And notice how it's interesting. And then I'll take the comments and questions. They talk a language, they talk a kind of rabbinic language, the drasha. Notice in here, it's all about the drasha. In other words, Yoav and, Yoav and Shlomo are talking about the question whether if a rodev comes after you and you could save the rodev by using a minimal amount of force, but you didn't, whether you're culpable or not. It's a very interesting question. It's called which comes up elsewhere in Sanhedrin in the context of David and Saul. Achim Barakim, to be Doresh. So the Talmud has all of these people talking a kind of rabbinic language, a drasha. They're making drasha, kind of exegesis over here. And I think the larger question is, what is this rabbinic project of putting in the mouths of Doeg and Avner and Yoav and even Shlomo, and Shimi, etc., and Amasa. They're talking like Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfon, etc. What is that actually about? I'll leave that question out for now, but are there any comments or questions about what we have so far? Okay, if there are no questions, we'll just continue. Okay, so now we have, um, fine. Now, the end of this sugya over here goes back to Yoav. Um, 
Let me, before I get to the end of the sugya, let me, let me make a different point about this, the sugya in general. This is the last sugya in chapter six of Sanhedrin. It begins actually by making the, telling us the halacha that we discriminate between those carrying out the judgment. They come to, they're studying the text, they're doresh, right? They're learning. And there's a kind of a, a kind of decision. They look at, they don't think about the implications so much. They look at the text, right? And then the implications may be drawn by others. If it means that after our careful study, so-and-so was put to death, someone else does that. They have nothing to do with us. We completely separate between the dean on one hand and the effects of the judgment on the other. The place of execution can't be in the court. It's got to be distanced from the court. That's how the chapter begins. And now, how does the chapter end? Chapter ends by talking about a case where the person who makes the judgment, how did we start this evening? A remarkable halacha. <clears throat> When the king brings someone up on charges and the person is put to death, the property of that person goes over to the king. It's very hard to make the argument that the judgment on one hand and the effects of the judgment are not bound together. And the fact of the matter is that the Bavli is raising a question. The Bavli is not saying the system is 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 uh, is is a puzzle. One might say, it doesn't work. The system is no good. Scrap the system. The Babi doesn't say that. That's not how the Babi works. The Babi makes a different point. Life is very complicated, and there's no black and white. The fact of the matter, the idea that people making judgments don't have any personal stake in the judgments in one form or another. Now it's not as blatant as. But the point of the Agadah to hear, and this is actually a very important point about the Bavli, and after all, the class is called King David in the Bavli. The point of the Bavli, the point of this particular Agadah, the way it's framed, apart from picking up on, in a terrific way, I think, a real sense of the beginning of Mulachim, of that story. But the point is, yes, the system is, in, intends for us to see these two things as separate from each other. But in point of fact, says the Bavli, is that really the case? Are people who are making judgments, whether it's a court or individual people, are those judgments, can those judgments be seen as completely unrelated to the person making the judgments? And it's hard to make the arguments, even though that's our aspiration, but it's very hard to make the argument that one has nothing to do with the other. So the end of the chapter, after all this talk about separation and the purity of judgment, and you want to give a chance for the person, because that's the reason it's separate, not just to discriminate between the two, but a person to make his argument, to be Muhammad's chut, okay? You have exactly that at the end of the chapter, where Yoav is making his case, okay? And the point of Yoav's argument is very powerful. The Talmud, I don't think it's saying Yoav is right, but it certainly ain't saying Yoav is wrong. 
And in making the argument that these are tzaddikim, that Abner is a tzaddik, okay? The one who comes out looking poorly out of the argument he was a tzaddik is not Yoav. He is perhaps guilty for simply following, following orders. We can't forget in the story that it's all about securing David's kingship and the one who gave the orders is none other than David himself. So it's always important to understand the context of these Agadot. Our particular interest is what does the Bible think of David? And I think this is actually a very uh, important Gemara because I think in answering the question what the Bible thinks of King David, in the stories we focused on so far, whether it's Bathsheba, whether it's Nov, whether it's the first chapter of Malachim, whether it's the story of, of the Givonim, and there are other stories. Those are problematic stories when one studies the book of Shmuel, forget the Babwe. But the Babwe is hardly unaware of this and in some sense has even a more pointed criticism. Something to think about as we move forward. Um, so let me just complete then the one more thought about uh, how the Babwe presents the story, which is the end of the chapter actually, which is all about criminal cases and judgments of the court. And now it quotes the verse after Yoav was killed. Yoav was executed because Benayahu goes back and kills him. And it says, And Yoav was buried in his house, which was in the desert. So the Gemara says, What do you mean his house in the desert? If he said his house, what do you mean the desert? Well, what does that mean? They're darshaning in his house, which is the desert. His house is not a desert. So now we have this is an opportunity for the Babu to say something about Yoav. So the drasha is his house was like a desert. A desert is a place anybody can come. Yoav's house was open to the world. It was Mufkarlak Hefker. Anybody could come and take whatever they wanted from the house of Yoav. That's Yoav. And the second statement is, he was like a desert. And the desert is empty. There's no theft. There's nothing going, nothing bad going on there. So was the house of Yoav. And the Gemara ends by saying, quoting a verse in Divrei Hayamim, that Yoav would keep the city alive. He would bring them all kinds of food. Hadrin Allah din, that's the end of this chapter. So what strikes me about the chapter is the end of the chapter is the judgment of Yoav. The judgment of Yoav. And the judgment of Yoav is, is, is laden with all kinds of all kinds of interests. It's the interest of Shlomo in getting rid of a potential danger. It's the interest of David in perhaps avenging himself for Yoav killing Avshalom. Uh, so Yoav is being judged over here. But what strikes me at the end of this chapter is when it describes Yoav as free from theft, but not just free from theft, his house was like a desert. Anybody could come and take whatever they want. In other words, a person with no self-interest. That's how the Bible, whether this is true or not is irrelevant. But that's what the Babu is saying, which of course is exactly what we want. The aspiration is that judges are this way. That judges don't have an interest. They don't take bribes, they don't take payoffs. 
Gezo. But beyond that, that's on one level, but beyond that, that they actually can divest themselves of their own personal interests altogether, which is not a simple thing to do. That's the danger, in, that, that's part of the danger in judging actually is that we always are judging the other person through our own eyes. Our own eyes means our own self-interest. And it's actually virtually impossible for people not to have self-interest. But the chapter ends by setting up Yoav as exactly such a person. And then it's in striking contrast to those who are judging Yoav. So my point about this particular piece of Gemara, which I think is actually remarkable, is that through the prism of Yoav and this, uh, and, the, and look at chapter one of Murachim, that um, it's, the Gemara is able to use David. It's not really about David himself. Yes, the Bathsheba story is mentioned, of course. Yes, uh, the story of Nob is mentioned. Avner would not kill the priests of Nob. The Gemara keeps coming back to these stories because it's all about taking responsibility, but it sets Yoav, Yoav up at the end of the chapter as precisely having the qualities that we, that we want the judge to have, to be fair-minded, not to, to put his own personal interests aside. In the context of people, whether it's David or Shomo, it's all about their self-interest. Maybe I shouldn't say all about, because it's also about establishing the kingship and establishing the institutions of the state, but it comes at a price. It's a price perhaps the Babli thinks we're willing to pay, but there is a price. Okay, I'm gonna take stop here with this uh, Gemara in Sanhedrin, what a Gemara it is. I'll take comments or questions if anybody has something to say. And um, next week we will look at a different short Gemara. There are two other Gemara that I certainly want to look at, maybe three, and different, different, it's, I say, more positive side to David. One of them raises a question about all of these Agadot, the, the Babli's view of David. And I wanted to discuss that. That's a Gemara in Brachot. And then there's a very famous story at the end of Masechet Pesachim. So that's certainly on the agenda. We have only one week left. I was thinking of extending the class for either one or two weeks beyond, unless people have strong objection. Well, no one has to come, you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, I'd like to finish this. So, um, okay, if anybody has comments or questions, please speak up. Yes? Uh, anybody? It's, yeah, it's Sandra. Um, yeah. So I have a question. Um, your last comment um, was that, um, are we willing to pay the price? Are you saying since basically what the Talmud is doing brilliantly, obviously, at the end and setting up Yoav, the judged, against his judges, kings David and Solomon, and finding the judges wanting and not Yoav, even after they just set us up for a page and a half on all the killings that Yoav did. So right. here we are with our heads bursting in half, trying to absorb this. And then you say, are we willing to pay the price? And so I need to understand this, maybe other people also. Are you suggesting that the price for judgment is sometimes very flawed and we have to be content with the flawed judgment, even if we lose a Yoav in the process? 
Well, I wouldn't put it that way exactly. I would say that we need institutions. We, we, we need to have a society in which believes in tzedakah umishpat. As it says about David, we need that and we do our best to have judges that are honest and the Torah instructs us to have tzedek, tzedek, tzedek. The point of the Bible is that's an aspiration. The reality is that the judges, the only true judge is God. But at the end of the day, God has instructed us to, to judge. So we have to, uh, we do the best we can with our limitations. And, um, and we should be aware of those limitations that we are imperfect beings and therefore our justice will often be imperfect. And we have to work very hard to set aside our own personal, uh, personal needs you know, the worst thing you want to have is someone, a leader who thinks only about himself. That's not what it's about. Leading is about thinking about responsibility, what your job is. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> but at the same time, <clears throat> even in the story here, Yoav is not represented earlier as being perfect because his arguments are with Avner. And the truth is it's very complicated when you study mm -hmm. Shmuel. Mm -hmm. Part of it is avenging his brother, but it's also true that Abner really, he was a Rodev, a soil. So it's very complex. And I think what the Bavli is about is the complexities of life and the, mm -hmm. and the nuance. And I think the danger, and I'll just conclude with this thought, that what's very dangerous actually is when people see things in black and white. I'm right, you're wrong. And it doesn't work that way because the, the difficult questions in life are very complicated and they're very nuanced. And that's what this Babu is saying. It doesn't present you all as a saint. At the end of it, it does present him positively. But throughout the whole Babli, he's called, he's, he's, he's called on these things. And, you know, he did kill Uriahiti. Okay, David's no better, but he did it. And that's problematic. Killing of Avner is problematic. The killing of Amasa is problematic. At the same time, Yorv saves David time and time again. I think it's what the Babli is after is the complexity, to understand the nuance and complexity and yeah. aspirations. We aspire for a pure judgment. We are imperfect beings and therefore we understand that often we fall short of what we would hope for. Thank I'll you. Stop. You're welcome. I'll stop at this point. And if anybody has questions, my email is dsoberatrisha.org. You can always send me emails. I'm happy to respond. Looking forward to next week and we'll look next week We'll start probably with a, a source in Masechet Brachot. And if we have a chance to Pesachim, and we'll see next week if we finish. If we don't finish next week, so maybe I'll give an extra class uh, beyond. Okay, thank you very much then. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Rabbi. Thank you. Bye.